0: Either Schwitzer? Oh yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a 5 four, We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for the Switzer show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer.
1: Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us on today's program. We'll see how cigarette company Philip Morris is trying to reinvent its brand in a world not particularly crazy about cigarettes nowadays. We'll look at a new fintech payment system that actually helps banks cope with their out-of-date old computer systems. It's called Varency. We'll talk to its founder, David Link, and I suspect this is going to be one of those high-tech companies that one day will be on the stock market and we'll be all kicking ourselves that we didn't invest in it when it first came on the scene. So, you know, Keep your, keep your eyes and ears out for a company called Verency, But first of all, we'll kick off with a guy by the name of Stuart Cook. Now, Stuart, at the age of about 23, I think it was, he was CEO of that Mexican food business, Zambreros. He, he was there for quite some time, but he's now become chairman of a fitness business called FitStop. Stuart, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me here. All right. So let's talk about FitStop in a minute because that's your new business, right? Yes. But you were CEO of uh, Zambreros. So, for those people who don't know Zambreros, they probably don't go to food food shopping centres uh, or food courts in shopping centres very often. Just tell us about your connection to Zambreros.
2: Uh, so, I was a former CEO of Zambrero, which is a fast, quick, casual uh, restaurant in Mexican space within Australia. I yeah. uh, started off by Dr. Sam Prince in Canberra and I was fortunate enough to meet him and become the CEO and his business partner just after they had opened their second location yeah. and stayed on board as the CEO, helped it grow from, over, from two locations to over 100 over the following seven years and yeah. had yeah. quite a ride.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I know I had Sam on my television show a few years back. People, when they started off, I I would have thought. Um, And even though you call him Dr. Sam Prince, he's not a very old guy. He sounds like a a very old guy, doesn't he? He's quite young, isn't he? Yeah, he's an
2: amazing guy. He uh, graduated high school, I think, at the age of 15 or 16 and became a practicing doctor by the age of 21. And so... You know, alongside that, he was opening in Mexican restaurants and uh, also doing a lot of charity work from yeah. the profits of those restaurants. And that's That was very, very
1: important to the, to yeah. the business
2: offering, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely was. Yeah. And that was something that brought Sam and I together from the early days. Yep. I thought it was kind of funny that a, a doctor had a couple of Mexican restaurants, but mm. he was building schools in Sri Lanka right. where his um, family originally from. Yep. And so I signed up to do charity work and build schools with him in Sri Lanka in 2009. Mm. Um, and then that sort of how our partnership formed, and then he, after working together in the jungles of uh, Sri Lanka, said, "How about you come on board and be my CEO and help me grow this business?" Yep. And so okay, and so in
1: 2013, you were awarded CEO Magazine's Young Executive of the Year for Australia, where you're working with Zambrero. Then, yes, you were, yeah. and in 2015, was selected as the Young Global Leader for the World Economic Forum. Yeah,
2: how was that? That's amazing, and it's still uh, something that I'm involved with today. So yeah. in June. I am off to uh, the Summer Davos, which is being held in Dalian in China, uh, and was in San Francisco last year as well. With that, so that's a six-year term where they get young potential leaders and you know change makers in different different industries around the world uh, to come together and collaborate and share ideas and form great connections that will hopefully last a lifetime and hopefully change the world. How old were you
1: when you went there?
2: Uh, so I was 23 when I first came aboard with Zambrero right. and then. Got to elect to be a young global leader at 28.
1: Okay. How, how did your first forum? How did you change as a consequence of it?
2: I think that just I, Australia is an amazing place, and we are incredibly lucky to be brought up here. Hmm. Um, but seeing the how. Um, oppress certain individuals are around the world, but then how also how large the world is, and how much opportunities and the ability to really think big mm. about certain issues around the world. That's something that was really inspiring about coming together with different global leaders or you know people from all different walks of life. So, and,
1: and but Stuart, when you go to these forums, how much of it is trying to perceive the economic opportunities, and how much is it? actually understanding um, sort of corporate responsibility as well? Uh,
2: I'd say that, I would say it's about 80% it is about trying to do good in the world. Yeah. Um, there is some large corporates that are represented there, right. but there is a lot of non-for-profits, a lot of people in the government sectors and different communities around the world. Right. Um, and so they're trying to learn from each other. And I think that the the, the change, exchange of information probably comes the most from people who are just experiencing what other countries are doing or what are some of the other business principles mm-hmm. and some of those non-for-profits leveraging some of the large networks and means available that uh, corporates have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I to be completely honest, I expected a lot more from an economical and commercial standpoint yep. and that's probably, you know, I came in there with a bit of a dual re- reason, mm-hmm. but the most part I got out of it is that how are you going to um, influence government, change policy, um, and really empower large non for profit. Okay, and,
1: and is the expectation that young people like you, when you come back, through your business influence, you then can exert pressure on governments, on corporations to be better corporate citizens, yeah, and the, global Yeah,
2: there definitely is that. Yeah. So there was okay. a huge huge push in uh, San Francisco last year uh, in October. The main two themes was the, around the fourth industrial res- revolution. So the, um, you know, the incoming artificial intelligence, how it's gonna impact jobs and the lives of many sort of people around the world. So there was dis- discussion topics around uh, universal income, um, but then also there was a large impact on, larger focus on women on boards um, and so, then a lot of the different, you know, small takeaway points of that is just been making uh, women around the world aware of the different board opportunities that may be presented. Because there's a lot of large corporations and non for profits who are actually looking to provide gen- better gender diversity, but there's sometimes a little bit of a um, skills gap. And so if you can actually help some of these amazing women who are part of the world economic forum find some of these opportunities yeah. that's sort of helping those companies yeah. as well
1: and i guess there are women out there who say well given the performance of many companies and countries even with our lack of skills we could do a better job than the people who are currently running the yes. place that's yes. what i'm sure i, I agree with you okay let's get like a fit stop now it's a, sounds like a great name. It is. All right. So what do you do at FitStop? So I'm the chairman
2: of FitStop. Yep. Uh, so I, I've i been on board now for the past 14 months. Yep. Uh, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, the co-founder, um, Richard Bell. Um, so there's two co-founders, mm-hmm. um, Richard Bell and Peter Hull, uh, and a, a previous role with uh, on another board of an investment I have called the Entourage. He was the former general manager there. Yep. I saw how the work that he did, he did there and then – he came to me with his company that he was working with and co-founded, called FitStop, and you know it was in the franchising space, which I'm very familiar with, with my time with Zambrera. Yeah. and I really think that the fitness space globally is taking off. And sure is. Uh, he introduced me to the founder, his fellow founder Peter Hull, and Pete's an amazing guy with a great passion, a great vision for the business, mm-hmm. and so I invested and came on board as chairman then.
1: Okay, what's the so, so for people who've never heard of FitStop, tell us what it actually does. Sure. And what's this competitive advantage? Because it's, it is a, a crowded space, but you're right, more and more people are using that, this crowded space. Yeah, sure.
2: So F- FitStop is a group uh, training facility. Mm. Uh, and so we, we have a FitStop formula. So we have three different training methodologies that combine to our FitStop formula okay. being a fit, fast, and functional session which is around about 45 minutes every single session okay so our gyms are open in the morning some in lunchtime and then the evening and so you're actually coming in in a group environment mm-hmm. to really push each other and get the best out of that session you're not there to you are there to have a community and a great experience and get to train with other people but it's really about getting the most out of a short period of time mm-hmm. so you can go and live a fulfilling and healthy life uh and and do really really well okay
1: yeah being in the competitive space, I'm yep. sure you don't like me making this comparison, but sure. it's what F45 has done in some measure. And I know F45 pretty well because Robbie Deutsch, the founder, yep. you know, we took Robbie overseas. He's one of the best mates of my son's. And I had him on my TV show when he was quite uh, up and coming, but yep. not as big as he is now with Mark Wahlberg buying half of his business. Uh, and Robbie's never you know, giving me a, an ounce of <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, but still – that's what happens when you, you grow up with a, a great young bloke like him um, and it seems to me that this is a new formula cuz the old formula was you turn up to fitness first and you see people and that sort of stuff this is, a, is this seems like more automatic am i right in making that assumption
2: yeah definitely and i think if you look at the evolution of fitness over you know probably the each decade there's been different uh, there's been you know, when people were first uh, entering the gym and the big box gyms had their time, you had the fitness first, you then moved to the 24-hour. Which well, I
1: still guess is probably right for some people. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
2: And so I think um, more and more is, is that this sense of community and belonging is really like with the age of social media and yeah. they say that we're the most connected in our lives, but we also can be the most separated and lonely in our lives. Yeah. And so you're yeah, looking Yeah, we, we at, know
1: you guys are weird, but we love you all we are, a bit weird. we are a bit <laughs>
2: weird, but... So what, what FitStop does as well as some of those other gyms is yeah. they really focus on that boutique fitness. They're focusing on really getting people in who are time poor, yeah. getting the best results that they can because, you know, I think also the next generation of people are a little bit more vain than their parents or their grandparents yeah. because of the rise of social media, yeah. Instagram. You guys care about
1: six-packs. We, we do. You men read magazines with blokes on the cover. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm <laughs> on the way. I'm on but, the way. But, going, I've got yeah. my, my place down you know, with guys showing off their pecs and that sort of stuff. Yeah.
2: That's the new and, generation. And, and so there is that generation. We we at FitStop are not tr- trying to, there are definitely people who are our clients yeah. and our customers who do fall into that category, mm. but we really focus on trying to have a all-rounded life. We're not going to go from one extreme to the other. So yeah. we sort of fall within the, a bit of a comparison could be, we fall within the sort of a body pump class at a fitness first, yeah. but then not as extreme as a CrossFit, mm. um, which which. Is amazing for some athletes, but we really focus on that progressive space in between.
1: And in many ways, even though you made the point that you're you're more sort of conscious about your appearance than other generations, it's also a total whole fitness thing, isn't it, and and health thing. And I think our generation often were disconnected between uh, what we ate. And all and all the sort of stuff. So we we had guys who were playing football at the highest level and smoking at half time. Yeah, you, know, you guys, I don't think would do that because you have more brains when it comes to what's good for your body. You might be sillier than us on Saturday nights, but certainly during the week, you're really a lot more pure than we used to be. And,
2: and I think that that's again what um, Pete does. Pete's uh, Peter Hull, who does an amazing job with all the programming, <laughs> is is that I think a lot of people young. Young people nowadays have uh, unre- uh, provided unrealistic expectations of what they should be doing. I mean, if you look at social media, you should have uh, too much salt, less salt, more salt. Like, um, You should be watching your calories. Don't count your calories. Like intermittent fasting, everything is all over the place. Culture hours. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The thing is, is that the Fitstop formula tries to get people to come on board. They do one fit, one fast, one functional session a week. So that's what we try and get our customers come in. So be three and and three sessions. There's people who come in every single day. There's Mm. people who do two a day. But if you can get those three Uh and lead a balanced lifestyle, all of our um, members have access to nutritional advice and. Um, and a lot of different tips and tricks. Uh, And so that's sort of that FitStop formula that we try and get out to the masses. Okay,
1: so how many outlets are there at this point in time? Uh, 18 open, as of yesterday. Okay. and um, We're now progressing to starting to open one a week. Okay, one a week. Yeah. And and I know with uh, F45, one of Robbie's... um, Market employees was to get well-known sports people yep. to buy the franchises. Is that a, 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 something that you guys are pursuing as well?
2: So watch that space where <laughs> we are speaking. It's a good idea, up. isn't it? Yeah, but you I, have to get
1: the right people because a lot of celebrities you, you who could be terrible yeah, business. I yeah, guess. so
2: they're definitely and again, huge fan of um, Mark Wahlberg, but and hopefully he doesn't do
1: anything wrong. To them. But, <laughs> that's
2: right. Uh, no, so one of the big differentiators for us is is that because of that focus on community, we are we don't sell the uh, franchises to pure investors. So because we believe that our long-term sustainability within the fitness industry will be creating community and so often if investors just buy a location, throw an employee in there, then then the... community is focused and attached to that person rather than that business. Yeah. So we make sure that the, each, the actual head trainer has at least 30% ownership stake in that location. Has so, a presence. so has a presence and mm. we also are about empowering that. And that's where Pete's background has come into play. He wants mm. to really focus on empowering that personal trainer to own their own business and mm. create an amazing lifestyle because there's so many different fitness brands that burn and churn all these people who are excited about fitness mm. They go out and do their personal training certificates and then get tired of being beaten around and so we are there to try and provide a great thing. Skin in the game is yep. a big help.
1: But of course, it then comes back to you guys to be very good managers of franchisees because sure. the ones that failed, the franchisor has been a bad manager of people.
2: Yeah. And, that, and that's one of the, the really good lessons that I took from my time with Zambro is that you know, I was 23 when I became CEO of Zambro. no yeah. idea what I was doing. That's, and that's so good. That's good I, <laughs> I opened up BIW Magazine and uh, saw all the fastest-growing franchise mm. CEOs in there and I took most of them out for coffee and I just said, what piece of advice would you give yourself if you were 23 again?
1: You didn't get a chance to have a coffee with Navi Saleh from... Uh, uh, I haven't met Nabi. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you got it right for a long time.
2: It did. but yeah. and, and So the thing is is that... Is that When you you franchise a business, there's some things that corporate can do really, really well and there's some things that franchise partners can do really, really well. And so if you can take – like running a small business is challenging no matter what sector it's in. But if you can take some of the challenges away from running a small business like bookkeeping or ordering or certain supplies Mm -hmm. or even lead generation for for different people on social media – then those trainers get to be focused on what they can do really, really well. And that's be, run great training sessions, interact with the community that is not only in the gym but around them, their gym. Yeah. And for example, Grill do a really, really good job with that with their franchise partners. Yes. Okay. And so that's one of the philosophies that we've taken with Zambra and really provide that support for FitStop franchise partners mm. um, because we know that our success is their success. Yeah, for sure.
1: Well, Stuart, good luck with it. I'm sure you'll do very well. Um, Your attitude to um, to business is very healthy. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. That was Stuart Cork, who's the chairman of a new business called FitStop. Now, you could say that 2019 so far has been politically challenging, and you must be wondering how this political rollercoaster will affect your financial future. Well, our Switzer Investor Strategy Days back in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane to cover all these topics and more. We get together some of the smartest fund managers in Australia. They present. They go on panel, I talk to them, I interview them, I grill them, and then you get a chance to ask any question you like to make you more content about how you're going to invest in the future. Tickets are only $39 and they are on sale now. So for more details, head to www.switcherevents.com.au. I really look forward to meeting you in the flesh at our Strategy Days. You know, a lot of people are thinking, "How are cigarette companies going to survive, considering all of the bad publicity that goes on around cigarettes? Well, the Senior Vice President of Global Communication for Philip Morris, uh, Marianne Salsman, she says the company is actually looking at a way of re- reinventing itself. And I caught up with her uh, earlier last week, and this is what she had to tell me. Marianne Salsman, welcome to The Switzer Show.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Marin, let's just try and position you um, for my audience. You are responsible for what at Philip Morris International, or PMI?
3: I'm responsible for global communications, largely um, oriented around our smoke-free movement, the idea of unsmoking the planet, moving people towards safer alternatives and away from combustible cigarettes. But I'm a comms person by background and training.
1: Yeah. So, so I guess everyone has to associate Philip Morris with smoking because that was the, the brand um, investment for, for decades. And now do they have a different approach to what Philip Morris right. wants to stand for in the future?
3: Yeah, I'd say they have a different definition even for the present. I've been at Philip Morris now for 11 and a half months and um, have yet to have any real exposure to combustible cigarettes. Our entire orientation is around the 20% of our portfolio that's in the better for you category, the healthier products, um, the the smoke-free products.
1: Mm. And so how long has Philip Morris been in that space?
3: So what we say is that we've invested um, a little over $6 billion in almost 10 years to reposition ourselves away from combustible cigarettes. Mm. Um, I'd say with obviously an increased frenzy and emphasis in the last four, four and a half years.
1: Okay, so you, you keep mentioning the word combustible cigarettes. I think a lot of my listeners would be wondering why you're <laughs> using the word combustible cigarettes.
3: Because the enemy of health in part is the smoke, is the combustion, is the burning. Hmm. And as a consequence, we um, are really trying to uh, teach people to do is obviously if you don't smoke, don't start. Hmm. If you do smoke, you ought to quit. And if you don't quit, you need to find a safer choice. And that safer choice is not is away from the burn. Okay, do uh, not want to smoke in your life.
1: So are you talking about vaping as opposed to con- conventional smoking?
3: I'm talking about heat not burn, tobacco or vaping or anything else that is not burning. I'm talking about getting away from the burn.
1: Okay. Now, w- one thing you're, you're uh, renowned for is spotting international trends. So, tell us about the international trends in regards to old-fashioned smoking and what else you're seeing.
3: So, number one, it is not cool to smoke cigarettes. Mm. I think that is a universal truth that is probably not as true yet in truly emerging nations, but is very much true in what I'm gonna call the modern westernized world of North America of Australia, New Zealand, of uh, most of Europe. It's people that um, people want to be around other people that are burning tobacco. It's just smoke is uncool. What's interesting is uh, this recognition about smoke is actually carrying over to other things. So while I love barbecue and I used to love a fireplace, I'm building a new house and I banned fireplaces from my house because I don't want smoke in my home because of what I've learned from working at Philip Mars.
1: Mm. And, 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 and also the, the barbecue is under threat, or is that just a, a personal yeah, no, connection? The, the,
3: no, I wish it wasn't true, and especially I know how important the barbecue is down here, but it is true that you do not want to burn. The, the backlash against burn is coming.
1: And, and I guess and I, I have come across the, uh, the medical um, observations that meat that is overcooked, uh, has a, a much higher likelihood of causing cancer than raw meat
3: and the, the char is not good for you but the, it's especially the smoke I mean standing over the barbecue or standing over the fireplace tending the fire if you would is just a really unhelpful thing to do mm. I didn't know that before I joined Thought now I'm obsessed with it mm. sorry
1: yeah, but I guess this is a part of the the, the marketing and slash educational message that uh, Philip Morris wants to be associated with.
3: I mean, I don't know if they want me out there talking anti barbecue. That was probably my <laughs> own editorial uh, edition. Okay. But I definitely think I definitely think that uh, move away from. Um, the, the, the fire is, mm. is, is very much a real part of the platform, yeah.
1: Okay. So we, we keep hearing about artificial intelligence. How is that going to uh, affect uh, the sort of product space that you're in nowadays?
3: Look, I, I think it's all a learning experience. First of all, I think it's going to help us narrow cast messages better. It will empower us to uh, learn more about the person with whom we hoping to converse and then being able to deliver that custom message so that if you don't smoke, I don't need to send you a quick smoking message. I need to reinforce the fact you don't smoke. If you smoke, I need to send you a message that's really about all the alternatives out there to smoking.
1: And, and, and mar- uh, So, Marion, what what you seem to be saying to me is that once upon a time, the great advertising firms of the world were great because they had people who could actually probably guess what consumers were thinking. Uh, is AI, AI going to replace those smartest guys and girls in the room?
3: I hope that it's going to empower those smartest girls and guys in the room so that they're able to do their jobs better. I certainly think we run a risk in many of the thinking professions uh, of finding out that the great computer in the sky replaces some of us and thus we need to reinvent ourselves. So I think that the, the promise of AI is precision. The risk of AI is that it um, takes away that creative spark, that spark plug, who made all the difference in the world.
1: Okay. So what are the, the key market trends you're seeing that's going to be big over the next five years in business and tech or anything else?
3: So, so one thing I see is the importance of narrow casting. Um, absolutely doing media and programming. So a program like your own but literally narrow cast down to a sample of one or a household of one or a desktop of one mm. with customized messaging. I think our ability to become very intimate um, with our audiences by really going very small, uh, bigging up in terms of common messaging, but going, drilling down in terms of customization is super important. Yes, another, sir. Thing I, another thing I'm certainly seeing is um, brand new sectors of society. So what, how old is an old mom? An old mom used to be 25 or older. Today, she might be 45 or older. And really pushing it. I think I saw in one of your local newspapers um, in the last couple of weeks an article about moms over 50 not having any more liability in the hospitals where they were giving birth. So how old is, is, is an old mom? Hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of that sort of demographic falling away.
1: What, what, what about on... Redefining
3: well, I, how we market because yeah. a mom is a mom is a mom. She's got to decide... Does she feed cereal to her kids? Mm. How much television does she allow her children? Does she Mm. want um, only organic um, fibers on her kids' bedding? So you're going to market to her as a mom, not necessarily as a 25, 35, 45, or 55-year-old woman.
1: Okay, so it seems to me... Those
3: are are two. I think there's many more. I think the idea that we're all really desperately seeking authenticity um, and the redefinition of what authenticity is, um, meaning a move away from perfection. So I grew up in an advertising business that strived to sell you a perfect image, a dream. Mm. And I think today with authenticity, we're looking for that perfect wrinkle. Um, we're look at, looking for perfectly imperfect.
1: Mm. Well, it seems to me, and, and because I, I, I'm forced to interact with social media to let people know what we're writing or broadcasting or whatever, that, that the whole world is becoming increasingly more tribal is, is that something that you're identifying and then marketing according to the different tribes out there?
3: Look, I think the, the tribalism is um, profound. Um, is not necessarily a good thing either. It used to be a world where we would agree to disagree. So if you send someone a message and they didn't agree with you, hmm. they wouldn't become adversarial. They would just sort of be dismissive and let it go or pass it on to somebody for whom it was more appropriate. So I think that we are doing hyper segmentation today, Um, less as a company as Philip Morris and more as human beings, we're all hyper segmenting all of messaging, that we reach people in our own echo chambers and reinforce what we already know. And I think that's a really big risk, a terrible risk, in fact.
1: Okay. So just tell us, what other products has Philip Morris got into to ultimately replace the the products that they've basically made their profits out of over many, many decades?
3: I think right now our, our primary products are in the heat, not burn category. So it's it's offering you up this, um, effectively baked tobacco, for lack of a better description. Mm. I think in some markets we're um, piloting and trying um, vaping products, like in the UK, for example, we have a, a vaping product out there. I think we're looking also at other um, products over time. That what we offer up is as better choices, as a better life, Um things that just allow you to. Um, bring various um, things into your world, but hopefully through a filter of better science it gives you better solutions.
1: Mm. And so how is the, the market responding to the alternatives to old-fashioned smoking, combustible smoking?
3: So that's a wonderful question, and it really depends market by market. So in Japan, for example, our heat-not-burn products um, have really picked up to the point that we have about 20% of our market share is in the heat-not-burn category. In Korea, not with that same extraordinary results, but sort of really high-performing results, we've done the same thing. In other places, it takes longer. And first of all, what we need is governments to be receptive to welcoming our product, to bringing our product into the market, to making it legal for us to be able to sell it, because you can't sell a positive solution until it's legally on the market. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it, 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 again, it goes back to part of tribalism is this hyper-lo, hyper-localism. So what you can... Um, Do well in the UK. You can't do in Germany. What you can do in Germany, you can't do in Romania. What you can do in Romania, you can't do in New Zealand. And especially interesting, I'd say to your listeners, are what you can do in New Zealand, you can't do in Australia.
1: And so, what are the differences between New Zealand and Australia?
3: Okay, excellent. It's an excellent question. It really. Well, we. I can't sell you my heat not burn product right now. Oh. I can sell it to you in New Zealand, but I can't sell it to you here. Because right now, um, government here has not welcomed it yet. I mean, we hope that obviously is changing. But so right now, you can go to New Zealand, you can experience the product, but you can't um, buy the product or um, indulge in the product here legally.
1: Okay. So at this point in time, is there a a medical reason why the government's putting roadblocks in, in the way of your product?
3: No, I, I, I mean, I, look, I'm American. So the last thing I'm going to do is try to tell the Australian government what to do. Mm. I think it just has to do with how, um, how the processes have worked so far. And I think what we just have to hope is the conversations like the one you and I are having just force people to ask more questions so that they find out more. And look at our science. We've posted millions of pages. I'm being I'm understating. it We're literally millions of pages with the U.S. FDA as we await approval there. We've made our science very much available, both our own science and science that even comes from places like the University of Melbourne. We make that science all available. Mm. And then uh, we, we, we wait for governments to make the time, because obviously we know how busy all governments are. We wait for them to make the time to begin to start conversations about welcoming new products into the market.
1: And America, what's America doing with, with the product?
3: Uh, right now we have um, been waiting for a, a Little bit, I guess almost two years for the US um, Food and Drug Administration to give us clearance to start selling heat not burn products in the US. Obviously, um, as you may realize, vaping has taken off in the US in a big way already, but we're not in the US market right now. Hmm. We're waiting for the FDA to give us that clearance to come in. And what's the, di- actually-
1: what's the difference between vaping and your product?
3: So, vaping is a liquid, hmm. our product is. Um, heated tobacco
1: that would give you a, a vapor. Mm, okay. Well, look, uh, good luck with it. I, I hope that, um, you know, medical science gives you the big thumbs up and uh, it, it, it is, as you say, uh, a bit much better alternative to old-fashioned smoking and uh, good luck with it.
3: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, that was Marianne Salzman, the Senior Vice President, Global Communications at Philip Morris. And now, a word from our sponsors.
3: Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans.
0: Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth?
1: My next guest is uh, David Link, who is the founder of Varency, and Varency is a fintech business which I suspect, down the track, will be listed on the stock exchange and will be a, a pretty hot company. Uh, I think my interview coming up will pretty well explain why. Welcome to the program, David.
0: Thanks very much, Peter. Very good to be on.
1: Okay, so look, David, let's just give a, 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 a neat explanation of what Varency is.
0: All right, so, Peter Varency is a, an almost three year old Australian headquartered company, and we are a uh, white label software as a service platform for banks. And what we help them do is to launch new products and services much more rapidly than they could if they were doing it on their own. We enable them to do it around one specific moment, which is the most important one, which is the moment of payment. Mm. So, we're a middleware that helps them launch products and services very quickly.
1: Okay. So it it sounds very important to banks to have that kind of access to technology on a pretty important thing called payments. Um, What is the, the step up? What's the improvement that you guys have brought to the table compared to what was out there before you?
0: Yeah Well that's, that's a good question, Peter. So if you look at the problem we solve is one which is global and exists, and it has existed for quite a long time, and that is, if you look around the area of payments, the technology that pretty much every bank uses around the world, um, the, the technology suites, the legacy infrastructure, is 20 to 40 years old. And if you are the head of product? and you want to launch a new service for one of your retail customers or small business customers, I think Inverancy operates on what's called the issuing side, so the person making the payment, um, you don't really have many choices. You can spend somewhere between 2 and $20 million modifying that 20 to 40-year-old spaghetti, um, or you can migrate away from it, which is a very long and costly. It can be $20 million to $300 million, um, or you can use a service such as Varency's, which is a a middleware. And again, very, very similar to the types of uh, companies that uh, are out in the marketplace, such as an Apogee or MuleSoft, except Varency operates in a very specific place, which is around that moment of payment. And it means that as we layer on, banks then can uh, keep using their existing legacy technology and they're essentially feature-proofing those investments that they've made. But they can now connect new services, launch new things very quickly um, because kind of, like, kind of like plugging a power adapter board into a wall, um, they can now plug new things in and off of them very easily and very quickly. They don't have to touch the underlying infrastructure.
1: So uh, I guess what you're saying is with all the different payment systems that are out there in different businesses, uh, mm-hmm. to, to accommodate that, the the banks would have to really pay, spend a lot of money to take their, their side of the, the payments um, transaction to a level where they could, could do all that. You guys are already in that space. You're already playing in that payments adaptability space.
0: That, that's exactly right. So we've got a number of clients here in Australia. We started a little, a uh, little under three years ago. We are indeed a global firm, so we've got operations here in Australia, um, in the U.S., in Asia, and in Northern Europe. And uh, so, working with companies such as Volt Bank, uh, one of the neo banks in Australia, mm-hmm. FPOS National Debit Scheme, um, Banco de Vivienda, Colombia, and, and one of the largest banks in the Middle East, Emirates NDB. And for each of those, we're helping them to. These are banks, that, banks and schemes and processors that want to launch new products and services in the market, and they want to do so rapidly. Mm. Um, and that's where we are kind of a step up that enables them to do that. So,
1: Okay. So, so you, you mentioned names earlier. Are they the names that are playing in, in the same space as you, despite the fact that you may well have some points of difference?
0: Uh, No, there isn't currently anybody that that is actually playing in our space. So Mm. we are very fortunate on one end to be a first mover globally. Um, So the companies I was referring to, very solid, um, well-run companies such as Apogee, um, MuleSoft, these are API layers Mm. that play, APIs being application programming interfaces um, that for banks enable you to connect old world and new world technologies um, in a very standard way. Um, These are companies that play in this space, but they don't play around the moment of payment. Um, And the reason why we play in that space, there's such a barrier, is that there's an incredibly high uh, technological barrier. uh, Because when you connect in that space, you've got to operate at incredible scalability with incredibly low latency or time in the transaction. um, And that aspect becomes important because we operate live, real-time, in a payments flow.
1: Okay. So so why... uh... Excuse my ignorance here, but I'm sure most of us listening uh, would have the same ignorance. Why is our payment system, say, within the Australian business sector, so varied? Uh,
0: why is it so varied, or why is it so uh, why is it so challenging to change? I mean,
1: well, I, I would have thought that the systems that the the banks used would have been based on the the, the typical payment system you expect from most of their customers, which I wouldn't have thought was all that different customer to customer, but I may well be wrong. Can, can you, can you walk us over that, that um, uh,
0: understanding bridge? No, that's exactly You are exactly right there, Peter. So the systems aren't that different, actually, in the Australian landscape, but the, in the Australian landscape, isn't that different um, oh. if you look at the US, if you look at uh, Europe or so on. So mm. behind the scenes in the banks, the uh, systems are fairly old, um, particularly on what's called the issuing side of payments. They haven't been changed in a long, long time. Um, And it's essentially the last area in banking that um, has really had much technological innovation. Most of the other areas in banks have. And so in Australia, there actually isn't a lot of variation um, between the different banks and the internal systems, the switches and the card management systems and the other legacy infrastructure that they use to, to process payments. They've been relatively stable.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so given the stability, why wasn't there something doing what you guys are
0: doing? Well, that's and that's a great question. And so, up until now, um, it's been you really couldn't have done what we were doing five years ago. So, with if, uh, if you look at fintech itself, which is really you know financial, it's new innovative services and products driven by a set of technological advances in the marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so from Varency's perspective, we are a, a private cloud-based service. So using cloud to operate in payments, unthinkable five to seven years ago. Yeah. Um, again, highly secure, but using automation to the level that Varency operates at. As we're fully automated in testing and fully automated in deployment, which brings costs down. And so that that level of automation didn't exist even three years ago. And And so a combination of those technologies and a few others as well make it much less expensive um, to build something like we can build um, that you couldn't have really built for the mass use uh, even three years ago.
1: And so the fact that so many of us want to pay using our smartphones, has that created a market opportunity for you?
0: Oh, absolutely, because what this is all, where the market opportunity is, is as consumers and as small businesses that want to make payments, uh, consumers today want to pay in varying and different ways. They want services that are completely ubiquitous and consistent across all aspects of their, of their bank. So I want to be able to pay using, using my phone, perhaps using Apple Pay, um, using my card. I want to have the same services. Maybe I'm online or web. I want to have the same services accessible across all of them. Um, But that's driving greater change. And if you also look at the industry itself, particularly the advent of open banking and neobanks, a lot of this is being driven because uh, because of those technology changes Mm. that people want to react to the fact that consumers now want different value-add services. And value-add services are the most important thing in making a consumer sticky around the moment of payment. It's not simply how you pay.
1: Yep, yep, yep. Now, um, if companies overseas aren't doing this, is your technology going to have applications to any bank anywhere in the world?
0: Absolutely. And so we, uh, Verity actually has operations and clients um, all around the world. So while we are young, um, and it just goes to show the, the, uh, the demand and the, the, just the right time, right place for this mm. type of need, you have banks all over the world uh, who are really opening their eyes to the need to... Differentiate their services, particularly at moment of payment, uh, for consumers, and that there aren't any easy choices.
1: Okay, so how how many employees do you have at this point in time?
0: Uh, we currently have a little over thirty. Uh, okay. So we're headquartered in here in Australia, but we've got operations in Silicon Valley, um, in, in London, and in Singapore.
1: Okay, so when are you going to list? Because anyone listening to is saying these guys, these guys are going to kill them. So is there any plan? <laughs> is there any plan to list?
0: Uh, no, we've, uh, not currently. So uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps in the far distant future, no, we're really focused right now on, on building what is a uh, long-term, very solid, very sustainable company um, yeah. in the market. And so we're a long, slow march. Um, so currently, like I can say we have no plans to list, but it's certainly not something we look at as we move ahead from a, a capital perspective.
1: Well, I was going to ask you, where does the cap- capital come from right now?
0: Uh, we've got uh, a number of investors uh, here in Australia and uh, Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. and as we, we're just finalizing our current existing Series A, and as we move on to our Series B, um, which will be coming up here in the next couple of months, um, we've already got a lot of entreaties from Europe and, and the U.S., so we'll be focusing quite a bit there, because that's where a lot of our market is.
1: Okay. Well, David, you are well-named, because Link, when it listed, did very well, and it has done very well in the, the financial services space, so good <laughs> luck with that, and thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show.
0: Excellent. Thanks very much, Peter.
1: That's David Link, the founder
0: of Verency.
1: Well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Next week, I'm going to be looking at some of the important issues around house prices and what we can do to make money out of a falling property price market.